West Virginia, who knew? West Virginia is a great state with an interesting past. Did you know? Until June 20, 1863, West Virginia was part of the state of Virginia. But during the Civil War, West Virginia became the 35th state in the Union. It all started when the majority of Virginia delegates voted to succeed from the Union and become part of the Confederate States of America. The people in the western part of the state disagreed with the decision and decided to form a state of their own. President Abraham Lincoln signed a law allowing West Virginia to become a separate state, and it remains one today. The citizens of West Virginia still celebrate June 20th as a legal holiday, West Virginia Day. It is the only state to have been created by presidential proclamation. Ope, Summer, and Cletus visit the state capital of Charleston, but the capital of West Virginia hasn't always been in Charleston. When West Virginia became a state in 1863, Wheeling was the capital. The capital was moved to Charleston in 1870, then back to Wheeling in 1875. In 1877, a vote was held to decide between Martinsburg, Charleston, and Clarksburg as state capital. The capital was moved back to Charleston again, and despite recurring protests, it has remained there. The West Virginia Capitol building was completed in February 1932. It cost over $9 million to construct. West Virginia was the first state to have a sales tax in 1921, free rural mail delivery, 1896, and outdoor advertising, 1908. The first steamboat was also launched in West Virginia in 1787, and the town of Grafton, West Virginia, was the first place to observe Mother's Day in 1908. West Virginia even has claim to the first brick street in the world. It was laid in Charleston in 1870. Quick state facts. State animal, black bear. State bird, cardinal. State butterfly, monarch butterfly. State fish, brook trout. State flower, rhododendron maximum or great laurel. State fruit, golden delicious apple. State nickname, the Mountain State. State motto, Mountaineers are always free. What in the whirly gig? In Missing May, Obe Crafts detailed beautiful whirly gigs. You can make whirly gigs of your own with a few simple supplies. What you'll need. Sturdy construction paper or cardboard. Scissors. A sharpened pencil with a large eraser on the end. A small paper clip. Two small extra erasers. Now, put it all together. 1. Using the scissors, cut the construction paper in the shape of wings. The shape that works best looks like a long oval with points at the top and bottom, rather than rounded edges. Feel free to try out different shapes. Just make two wings that are the same shape and size. 2. Unbend the paper clip and flatten it out into one straight wire. Carefully poke one end through the middle of the pencil eraser. Pull the paper clip through so that an even amount shows on each side of the eraser. 3. Punch one end of the paper clip through the center of one construction paper wing and slide the wing along the paper clip toward the eraser. Do the same with the other wing on the other side of the paper clip. 
for now that you have one whirly gig wing on each side of the eraser it's time to put those extra erasers to use push one end of the paper clip through one of the erasers and move that eraser so that it's next to the whirly gig wing do the same with the other eraser on the other side five hold your whirly gig up in the air and watch the wing spin you could also name your whirly gig like Obe did with his you can give it any kind of name you want be creative decorate your whirly gigs wings with markers glitter or anything else you can find decorate the pencil too if you want paint it glue bright colored paper on it or wrap a pipe cleaner around it May's vegetable soup May grew fresh hearty vegetables in her garden you can grow vegetables too or buy some at the store to make May's delicious vegetable soup what you'll need one tablespoon olive oil one tablespoon unsalted butter two carrots sliced one quarter inch thick one medium onion chopped one handful green beans trimmed and halved eight button mushrooms sliced four cups chicken stock three cups water six potatoes chopped one quarter cup parsley chopped salt and pepper what you'll do heat butter and oil on medium-high in a big soup pot saute carrots onion and green beans for about four minutes add mushrooms and cook for another two minutes add chicken stock and water potatoes and some salt and pepper bring to a boil cover reduce heat and cook at a gentle boil until the potatoes are tender it should take about 15 minutes add parsley just before the potatoes are cooked season to taste then serve let it grow let it grow let it grow you can try growing vegetables or flowers of your own it's easy to plant seeds in your backyard in a pot or even in a styrofoam cup all you need is soil seeds water and some patience read the instructions on the seed packet or look in a gardening book in your local library to find out how deep to plant your seeds and how much water to give them while you're waiting for those seeds to grow into plants check out these wacky gardening facts what does baseball have to do with gardening the famous ball player babe ruth is said to have worn a cabbage leaf under his cap while he played the game it kept him cool and he changed it every other inning ever wonder how the daisy got its name since the yellow center looks like the sun many people knew it was the day's eye after a while it came to be called the daisy New Jersey is responsible for producing more than 60% of the eggplant in the entire world wouldn't it be nice to be as cool as a cucumber the insides of cucumbers on the vine can be 20 degrees chillier than the air outside on a hot day the rafflesia is the biggest flower in the world it can grow up to be three feet across you may know that trees change carbon dioxide into oxygen but did you know that a single tree can remove 26 pounds of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere in one year you can eat each and every plant in Tomorrowland at Disneyland they're all edible April is National Gardening Month so get out there and grow Cynthia Ryland won the 1993 Newbery Medal for Missing May she delivered this acceptance speech at the annual meeting of the American Library Association in New Orleans on June 27 1993 
Newberry Medal Acceptance by Cynthia Ryland. This is the biggest thank you note I've ever had to write in my life. Believe it or not, I've never been much good with words when I've tried to express gratitude, and especially love. It is as if my heart swells so big that it cuts off all the circulation to my brain, which shuts down just as I need to find a few good words. It is our spirits which understand love, not our minds, and our spirits wisely are never wordy. When you see that quiet owl swoop across your path in the woods at night, or those beautiful geese fly V-shaped over a dark lake in the early morning, or your own little child lies soft and moist in innocent slumber, it is your spirit which leaves you mute at the sight of these things, and which moves you to understand them only with your heart. Thus it is hard for me now to find words. On this momentous occasion, when I am required to give a grand speech, I have been rendered nearly speechless. I need to issue thanks to people who have made my life so beautiful that I have been inspired to write beautiful stories. The first will be my mother, who managed, I don't know how, never to belittle or condemn any opinion I ever held. And believe me, I held some wild opinions growing up. She loved me without judgment and patiently readjusted as I came home on holidays, sometimes as a vegetarian, sometimes not, sometimes a Christian, sometimes not, sometimes married, sometimes not. I had a baby when I was young and broke, and she rescued me from those times I was only steps away from the welfare office, and not once, though she has had countless opportunities, has she ever said to me, I told you so. I was raised in an atmosphere of forgiveness, and this may be the finest gift God has given me on this earth. Knowing that I would be forgiven by my mother, my family, if I ever failed at anything I tried, gave me the courage to be a writer, the courage to place my work in the world for judgment, and the courage to keep on trying to say something important in my books. I must thank my grandparents, who raised me for several years in Cool Ridge, West Virginia, until I was eight. There is no question in my mind that it was during those years that the writer in me was born. And though I don't remember it, I am sure I had many conversations with the angels as I walked in those West Virginia mountains, and what they said to me I tried to remember and write down after I was grown. I don't think I am the only person who spoke to angels as a child. I think probably most of us did. And whether we grew into writers or painters or teachers or librarians, we kept that light inside us that was the evidence of God. And when we loved books like Charlotte's Web, The Runaway Bunny, Frog and Toad, Our Friends, All Harper, and even The Stupid Step Out, Houghton, it was because of all that angel light that had fallen on us as children. My grandparents gave me a small, warm, quiet house. They gave me faith in breakfast every morning and supper every night. They gave me a garden rich with the smell of carrots and potatoes and beans. They gave me the sacrifice of all their work on my behalf, and from them I learned steadfastness. I grew up reading comic books because there was no library in my town or in my school, and I did not enter a public library until I was in my 20s. When I was 23, just out of college and desperate for a job, I went to the Cable County Public Library in Huntington, West Virginia, and asked for a job as a clerk. I was hired and assigned to the children's department. Having grown up reading comic books and the Nancy Drew books my mother bought for me at the dime store, I did not know there was any such thing as children's literature. 
had majored in English in college, and still I did not know this. I spent only five months working in that children's room. I was, myself, growing my own baby, who would be delivered in the oranges and reds of the fall. In those few months in that treasure chest of children's books, I discovered what I was. I was a children's book writer. I also learned many things about libraries those months that I have never forgotten. The most important thing I learned is that they are free, that any child from any kind of house in any kind of neighborhood in this whole vast country may walk into a building which has a room full of books meant just for him and may choose whichever ones he wants to read and may take them home because they are free. And they are not free in a way which might diminish the child, not in the way of second-hand clothes or Salvation Army Christmas toys. They are free in the most democratic and humane way. Both the poor child and the wealthy child are privileged with free libraries. And whenever they enter one, make way for ducklings, Viking, will be sitting there waiting for them both. When I discovered I was a children's book writer, I began writing stories at home and mailing them to publishing houses in New York City. I was still living in West Virginia and had never met an author or illustrator, had only just found children's literature myself, and had not the foggiest idea how people became published. But I bought a copy of a book which listed publishers' addresses, and I mailed my stories to New York anyway, because that's what I was put here on earth to do in 1978. And that year, I received two more gifts from God. One, the most important, was my son, whom I named Nathaniel after one of my favorite writers, and that spirit in me, which has been a little too quiet, was stirred by this young child, and I found in this stirring my strong writer's voice. It sounded like this. When I was young in the mountains, Grandfather came home in the evening, covered with the black dust of a coal mine. Only his lips were clean, and he used them to kiss the top of my head. And it was this voice, this writing, which led to the second gift of that year, the acceptance of my first book for children and new meaning for my life. Writers, especially new ones, need editors, and the newer the writer, the more desperate that need. God gave me a third gift. He gave me Richard Jackson. I am not sure I would have written more than a few books in my life had I not been blessed with Dick Jackson on my maiden voyage. It is hard to believe you are worth much as a writer when you first start out, and if there's no one there convincing you otherwise, no one there waiting in hopeful anticipation of your next work, then it is hard to keep writing. You can talk yourself out of it and go work in a bank instead. Perhaps most people think editors are simply the ones who fix the cracks and crevices in a writer's book until it is fit to be published. I certainly thought that before finding Dick. But I know better now. I know what it is that editors need to give and must give to the new writers who feel small and ungifted in this big corporate machine called publishing. Editors must give love first and foremost. It is love which guides all our best work, which makes anything on this planet permanent. Without it, whatever is born, whether a child or a book, will be unable to shine. Dick Jackson loved me. He has loved many writers and artists, and his love for their talent and their struggle and their innocence has given the world beautiful books like The Slave Dancer and Dog Song, both Bradbury, and this love has made us all better. We have had God's angels among us, and though we no longer see some of them, they are with us still. James Marshall, 
Arnold Lobel, Dr. Seuss, Margaret Wise Brown, they gave us art that lifted us and reminded us of the light from which we came and toward which we are returning. They worked always in love. I have many friends here tonight, fellow writers, illustrators, editors, librarians. I have my most dear ones here, my best friend Diane, my sweet Dave, my son Nate, and my mother Lee, who make my life safe and who make it worth living. Outside this room, we all have the stars. We have squirrels in the trees and whales sublime in the oceans. We have birds which will leave us in winter and which will return to us in spring, and flowers promising to do the same. We have wet rain, white snow, and always the sky. We have the universe. I want to thank the Newberry Committee of 1993, the American Library Association, all children's booksellers, all children's book publishers, all children's librarians. I am honored to have been a part of you this past decade, and I cannot wait to see all the beautiful books which are waiting for us in the future, which wait for the poor child and the wealthy child, and which will be given to them with love. Thank you, and God bless you all. Missing May, written by Cynthia Ryland, narrated by Kathleen Moranti. Part 1. Still as Night. Chapter 1. When May died, Obe came back to the trailer, got out of his good suit, and into his regular clothes, then went and sat in the Chevy for the rest of the night. That old car had been parked up by the doghouse for as long as I could remember, and the weeds had grown up all around it, so you didn't even notice it unless you looked, and for years I couldn't understand why Obe didn't just get rid of the awful thing until I saw him sitting in it after the funeral. Then I knew that even though nobody in the world figured that old car had any good purpose, Obe knew there was some real reason to let it sit. And when May died, he figured out what it was. I never saw two people love each other so much. Sometimes the tears would just come over me looking at the two of them even six years back when I first got here and was too young to be thinking about love. But I guess I must have had a deep part of me thinking about it, hoping to see it all along, because the first time I saw Obe help May braid her long yellow hair, sitting in the kitchen one night, it was all I could do not to want to go to the woods and cry forever from happiness. I know I must have loved like that, even if I can't remember it. I must have. Otherwise, how could I even recognize love when I saw it that night between Obe and May? Before she died, I know my mother must have loved to comb my shiny hair and rub that Johnson's baby lotion up and down my arms and wrap me up and hold and hold me all night long. She must have known she wasn't going to live, and she must have held me longer than any other mother might, so I'd have enough love in me to know what love was when I saw it or felt it again. When she died and all her brothers and sisters passed me from house to house, nobody ever wanting to take care of me for long, I still had that lesson in love deep inside me, and I didn't grow mean or hateful when nobody cared enough to make me their own little girl. My poor mother had left me enough love 
to go on until somebody did come along who'd want me. Then Uncle Ob and Aunt May from West Virginia visited, and they knew an angel when they saw her, and they took me on home. Home was, still is, a rusty old trailer stuck on the face of a mountain in deep water in the heart of Fayette County. It looked to me, the first time, like a toy that God had been playing with and accidentally dropped out of heaven. Down and down and down it came and landed, thunk, on this mountain, sort of cockeyed and shaky and grateful to be all in one piece. Well, sort of one piece. Not counting that part in the back where the aluminum's peeling off, or the one missing window, or the front steps that are sinking. That first night in it with Ob and May was as close to paradise as I may ever come in my life. Paradise, because these two old people, who never dreamed they'd be bringing a little girl back from their visit with the relatives in Ohio, started from the minute we pulled up in Ob's old valiant to turn their rusty, falling-down place into a house just meant for a child. May started talking about where they'd hang the swing as soon as she hoisted herself out of the front seat. May was a big woman, and Obe was designing a treehouse in his head before he even got the car shut off. I was still so sick to my stomach from traveling all those curvy West Virginia roads that all I could do was swallow and nod, swallow and nod, try to smile without puking. When we got inside the trailer, it became plain to me at once that they didn't need to do any great changing to make a little girl happy. First thing I saw when May switched on the light were those shelves and shelves seemed every wall covered with them of whirligigs. I knew what they were right off, even though they weren't like any whirligigs I'd ever seen. Back in Ohio, people had them hooked to their fences or stuck out in their gardens to scare off the birds and they'd be mostly the same everywhere, a road runner whose legs spun in the wind, or maybe a chicken or a duck. Cartoon characters were popular. Garfield was in a lot of gardens with his arms whirling like crazy in the breeze. I'd seen plenty of whirly jigs, but never any like Obe's. Obe was an artist. I could tell that the minute I saw them, though artist isn't the word I could have used back then, so young. None of Obe's whirly gigs were farm animals or cartoon characters. They were the mysteries. That's what Obe told me, and I knew just what he was talking about. One whirly gig was meant to be a thunderstorm, and it was so like one, black and gray, beautiful and frightening. Another was Obe's idea of heaven, and I thought his angels might just come off that thing and fly around the house trailer any minute. So golden and light were they. There was fire and love and dreams and death. Even one called May, which had more little spinning parts than any of the rest of the whirly gigs, and these parts all white. Her spirit, he said. They were grounded to a branch from an oak tree, and this, he said, was her power. I stood there before those shelves, watching these wonders begin to spin as May turned on the fan overhead, and I felt like a magical little girl, a chosen little girl, like Alice who has fallen into Wonderland. These feelings have yet to leave me.
and as if the whirligigs weren't enough, May turned me to the kitchen, where she pulled open all the cabinet doors, plus the refrigerator, and she said, Summer, whatever you like, you can have, and whatever you like that isn't here, Uncle Obe will go down to Ellet's Grocery and get you. We want you to eat, honey. Back in Ohio, where I'd been treated like a homework assignment somebody was always having to do, eating was never a joy of any kind. Every house I had ever lived in was so particular about its food, and especially when the food involved me. There's no good way to explain this, but I felt like one of those little mice who has to figure out the right button to push before its food will drop down into the cup. Caged and begging, that's how I felt sometimes. My eyes went over May's wildly colorful cabinets, and I was free again. I saw Oreos and Ruffles and big bags of Snickers, those little cardboard boxes of juice that I had always just once wanted to try. I saw fat bags of marshmallows and cans of SpaghettiOs and a little plastic bear full of honey. There were real glass bottles of Coke looking cold as ice in the refrigerator and a great big half of a watermelon taking up space and best of all, a carton of real chocolate milk that said Hershey's. Whirligigs of fire and dreams, glistening Coke bottles and chocolate milk cartons to greet me. I was six years old and I had come home. Chapter 2 May was gardening when she died. That's the word she always used. Gardening. Everybody else in Fayette County would say they were going out to work in the garden. And that's the picture you'd get in your mind. People out there laboring and sweating and grunting in the dirt. But Aunt May gardened. And when she said it, your mind would see some lovely person in a yellow flowered hat snipping soft pink roses little robins landing on her shoulders. Of course, May never owned a flowered hat in her life, and her garden was as practical as anyone else's. In place of roses, it was full of thick pole beans and hard green cabbages and strong carrots. It was a reliable garden and friendly, and both Obe and me finally thought it right that May should have flown up out of her body right there in that friendly garden among all those cheerful vegetables, before she waved goodbye to us and went on to be that bright white spirit Obe had known all along she was. Only this part of her death seemed right, the garden. All the rest of it seemed so wrong, and it has been nearly six months. We have gone through two seasons without her, and still I don't know what kind of life Obe and I are going to come up with for ourselves. We have not done much of anything since, except to Miss May and Hurt. I never would have thought us to be so lost. We used to be tougher than this. Winter's not helping. February's a grim time in these mountains. It is pitch black in the morning when I set off down the mountain for the school bus, leaving Obe behind, watching me out the picture window. I feel adrift. When I was younger, either Obe or May would walk me out to the road and stand there freezing with me in the dark, making me stomp my feet to keep the blood circulating till the lights of the bus would finally bounce off the trees up the ridge. 
and somebody would hand me over to the roaring heater of number 56. But now I am 12 and expected to go it alone out to the stop. It isn't fear that this bitter February darkness starts working up in my stomach. I've never been afraid of anything since I came to live on this mountain. It's just lonesomeness. Oh, behind me, all alone, in that old trailer full of sleeping whirly gigs, and me on this black road, and both of us needing May so much. It's worse needing somebody in the dark, in winter, of an early cold morning. But most amazingly, most miraculously, now Obe is insisting that May was, is, right here with us, that she came back a few days ago and is truly right here with us. It was on Sunday and we were outside cutting open some milk jugs to make into bird feeders when suddenly Obe straightened up, put down his knife, and like a dog who thinks he's heard something move, pricked up his ears and listened. Obe, I said. Obe drew up his nose and got this foolish look on him like he was about to sneeze. Ob, I said again, and beginning to get a little nervous. Then his head snapped up straight like a soldier at attention, and he said, Hot damn! My heart was beating fast. What is it, Ob? Ob ran his bony fingers through that last bit of hair on his head and looked down to the ground in stupefaction. He pulled a gray handkerchief from his back pocket and blew into it. Then he folded the cloth up neatly, gave his nose one more confident swipe, and jammed the hinky back in his pocket. He looked hard at me. I'd seen that look on his face before. It was the look that always announced he'd gotten some kind of revelation. Ope was a deep thinker, and he was often getting revelations. May is with us, he said, with the same certainty he might have used telling me it was February. Huh? I put down my knife beside me. May was right here with us, just now. I swear to God, I felt her summer all up and down me like I just poured her in a glass and drunk her. He stared off in the distance, shaking his head again. Obe didn't look so good. Well, he's never looked real good. Obe is one of those Ichabod Crane types and looks. May's passing had just made him look more scarecrow than ever. But it didn't cross my mind to doubt him. Well... How'd she feel? I asked him. He looked back over at me. What's that? How'd she feel? I repeated. Did she feel like light? Like an angel? Did she tell you anything? Obe's eyes moved off to the bag of birdseed beside him as he thought. Finally, he answered. She felt like she did when she was packing up to go to Ohio. He said. Like she was going to Ohio? I couldn't fathom May taking the trouble of dying just so she could go to Ohio. He slowly shook his head. All those years, he said. Every time we'd be packing up to go see the folks in Ohio, half of May would want to go, and half of her would want to stay here. Couldn't make up her blame mind. She used to be afraid she'd lose this place if she left it for very long. Afraid it and the gigs would burn up and be washed away. She just didn't want to let this trailer out of her sight. But it kept her in a pickle because she always feared losing her Ohio kin, too. Feared one of them would up and die, unexpected, 
like her mommy and daddy in the flash flood, if she let them out of her sight for too long. So every so often, she'd have to leave this place and go check on them. He gave a big, long sigh. She felt like she did when we was packing up to go to Ohio. He said simply, figuring I'd understand. Well, I did understand, and it didn't set well with me at all. I never expected May to be back with us, and now that she'd stopped by, the least I expected of her was that she'd be able to make up her mind. I needed that from her. I needed to know that dying and going to heaven didn't involve any regrets or sorrows or worries. I wanted May to shine down on us and tell us she was having the most wonderful time, better than anything we could ever dream of. I sure didn't want her stopping by, wondering if she'd done the right thing after all, and was everything unplugged and the stove turned off. I believe in ghosts. Maybe angels would be a better word for them. But ghosts seem more to the point. So, if Obe says May was here, I figured she was. Anyway, I know May herself believed in spirits from the next world. She used to talk about her mommy and daddy watching over her after they died in the flash flood. Poor May. She was only nine when it hit. The rain came all day and all night, and all the next day, till finally the mountain couldn't soak up the water anymore, and down it washed, down the creek bed, a solid wall of water twenty feet high, down into the valley where May and her people lay fast asleep. It hit that little valley like a tidal wave, and whole houses broke in pieces. Big trucks turned over, floated away, trees cracked in half. May said that her mother, May always called her Mommy, heard that awful water coming and jumped out of bed, running from May's room. She lifted little May out of her dreaming and ran and put her in the old metal wash tub. That's all May ever remembered. The next memory she had was of waking up in that tub six miles from home and pulling a tired old cat from the water she was floating in. Her Mommy and Daddy were gone, lost forever. But May says they watched over her anyway, and all the rest of the time she was growing up, she'd get these strong feelings, whether or not to do something, feelings that told her which way to go. These feelings kept her out of a boy's car, which that night wrapped itself around a tree. They told her not to trust her weird neighbor, Mr. Rice, who the police carted off to jail. And one day, they told her to stick with Obe. May always said that once she got with Obe, her mommy and daddy could rest easy, and they finally flew off to that big church picnic in the sky. She said her daddy would be cleaning God out of his potato salad. May was the best person I ever knew, even better than Obe. She was a big barrel of nothing but love, and while Obe and me were off in our dreamy heads, May was here in this trailer, seeing to it that there was a good home for us when we were ready to land. She understood people, and she let them be whatever way they needed to be. She had faith in every single person she ever met, and this never failed her, for nobody ever disappointed May. Seems people knew she saw the very best of them, and they'd turn that side to her to give her a better look. Obe was never embarrassed about being a disabled Navy man who fiddled with whirligigs all day long, and I never was embarrassed about being a kid who'd been passed around for years. We had May to brag on us both, 
and we felt strong. But we're not strong anymore, and I think Obe's going to die, truly die, if I can't figure a way to mend his sorry broken heart. And if Obe does go, goes off to be with May, then it'll be just me and the whirligigs left, and all of us still as night, praying for wings, real wings, so we can fly away. Chapter 4 Look here at this. I reached across the aisle of the school bus and took what Cletus was handing me. It was an old photograph, fading away like a dawn that leaves you little by little, and it was of a child, a baby in a flowing white gown, arranged on a tall chair out in the middle of a field. The baby's gown was draped so that the chair was practically invisible, and the only thing you saw was this child hovering in midair, looking at the camera. Weird. I said, handing it back. I think something like this ought to be in a museum, Cletus said, pushing a greasy strand of hair back from his eyes. Cletus's black hair is long, straight, and, from my point of view, slimy. I don't think Cletus bathes much, though he never exactly stinks. He just seems to me the type who'd lay around the right guard for days before he'd finally break down and take a shower. It's what they call surreal, he went on taking something real and sort of stretching it out like a piece of taffy into a thing that's true but distorted. You know, like old lady Henley's face left. I smiled. Mrs. Henley was our seventh grade art teacher who just couldn't handle getting old. She was the only person in deep water who'd ever had a facelift, went off to Charleston to get it, and anybody from out of town could have guessed it. She just had this look on her like she was going to spring loose all of a sudden and snap clear across to the other side of town. Where'd you get it? I asked, leaning over to take another look at the photograph. I was up at Mrs. Davis's house, seeing if she needed anything from the store. I showed her my suitcase, and she brought me in and pulled a great big box off the top shelf of her closet. It was crammed full of stuff like this. I thought it struck gold. She gave you that picture? Cletus nodded. I was dying to take home every one of them, but I didn't say nothing. Just picked through the lot like I was sampling chocolates from a box. I stayed on for hours in her living room, going through all those pictures. I don't think she planned on giving me any, but finally, I guess, she feared it was the only way to get rid of me. So, she let me take this one. I stared at the floating baby. Did she choose it or you? I did. It was just too surreal to pass up. I shook my head. I can't believe you planted yourself in that old lady's house like some fungus mold till you got a picture out of her. Cletus took one last look at the photograph, then stuck it inside his math book. Ah, she had a good time. She don't ever get any company. I shook my head again in disapproval. I'm always shaking my head at Cletus, as if I have some need to keep reminding him that his presence in my life is something I neither intended nor arranged. So, how's Obe? Cletus asked. I thought of Obe this particular cold morning, not even bothering to fix his usual cup of cocoa when he got out of bed. He made sure I was up and had my lunch fixed and was out the door on time, but he didn't have his cocoa. Fair, I answered. Cletus looked longer at me, maybe hoping he could fathom Obe by seeing him inside my eyes, but I didn't have any deep truths to tell Cletus about Obe. Well, none except that visit from May— Aunt Cletus wasn't about to get that out of me. 
which didn't matter anyway because he got it straight from the horse's mouth that very night after supper. You believe in an afterlife, Cletus? Obe asked, handing Cletus a cup of black coffee. Cletus had dropped by on his way home from prayer meeting. Cletus told us he didn't go there for prayer. He went there for the donuts they always had after the service. I looked up from the paper on women's suffragettes I was writing for history and held my breath. Sure I do, Cletus answered, sipping at the coffee, a strand of his stringy hair nearly dunking itself. Even been there once. Obe's face lit up, just as mine went dark. You don't say, Obe answered. I was maybe seven years old. Cletus began to explain as he settled himself back into the lazy boy. My grandpa had been real sick, and he'd finally died the night before. Next day, people were preparing for the funeral and ignoring me in their bereavement. So I just decided to go on down to the river by myself, thinking I'd skip some stones till everything had passed over. Well, I'm standing there on the riverbank skipping rocks, when next thing I know, I'm drowning. I mean drowning. My foot must have slipped or something, and in I went. I was never able to swim a lick. And, and here's the God's truth, Obe. Obe set down his coffee cup and straightened up to listen. I passed on. I did. I remember this light ahead of me and reaching out to it. I went after it, and suddenly everything was brilliant white. And I swear to God, my grandpa was there smiling at me. And you won't believe this part. My little dog, Cicero, who'd been dead three years, he was with me too. Cletus stopped talking long enough to take a few gulps of his coffee, and while he drank, Obe and me had our eyes glued to him like a bomb set to explode. Nobody said a word, waiting. So, I'm there hugging Grandpa and petting little Cicero, and just feeling fantastic when I hear this voice say, Cletus, go on home now. I swear, that's what it said, told me to go on home. And Grandpa and Cicero started fading away, and this awful coldness and heaviness come over me, like I was wrapped in sopping wet rugs. And next thing I know, I'm there throwing up like crazy, and my Uncle Willie is threatening to beat me to death for nearly drowning. Cletus grinned at us both. Hell, I thought miserably. Heaven, Obe said out loud. You went to heaven and back, Cletus. Cletus nodded his head. No doubt in my mind. He answered, Then maybe it's you who can talk to May for me. She's been trying to reach me, but I ain't too good at communicating on her wavelength. I need me an interpreter. Cletus gasped at Obe. You heard from May? Couple of times, Obe said. A couple of times? I had only known about the one time, the first time, when I was there, making bird feeders. It suddenly hurt me that Obe hadn't told me about the second, and that now he was revealing everything to Cletus instead of me. I felt more than ever cut apart from him, sent off on my own while he took off on his, while he made plans to set aside this life we both knew so purely to try to make it to another one he knew nothing about, except that somewhere in it he might find May. I didn't know how to keep him tied to me. Already he was starting to live among the dead. Well, I'm no psychic or nothing, Cletus told Obe. I feel a connection to the spirit world because I've been there. Sort of like remembering a place where you once went on vacation. But I never get any supernatural messages or anything. I don't know any ghosts. Personally, I mean. Obe shook this off. Doesn't matter. 
You must have something special about you if you've been over to the other side. Maybe just having you in the house will help. Holy crap, I thought. The last thing I wanted was for Cletus to have an excuse to hang out at the trailer any more than he already did. Now, Obe wanted to keep Cletus here like he was installing some afterlife antenna on the place. But May didn't even know Cletus, I said lamely, making a puny attempt at party pooping. Obe smiled at Cletus and patted him on the knee. She don't have to meet him in the flesh to know this boy's summer. He said, looking at Cletus's interested face. May's been looking at them pictures over her shoulders all along. She knows Cletus, and I'll bet you she even knows his little dog. Obe's smile then slowly disappeared, and he wiped a hand across his eyes. In an instant, he looked more tired than I'd ever seen him, and my heart sank. Cletus and I just looked at each other.